Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. And yeah, you're on the record at a big time for college sports in all levels, at all contexts, but not just college sports, but the business of sports as well. Boy, we have a show for you. Look at the top items this week. Our opening drive, one to four. All of them action-packed. Let's get to them. Number one, Otani, $700 million contract, 10 years, the unanimous 2023 American League MVP, but so much more. He set the curve, Babe Ruth-type statistics and value, average annual salary of $70 million, smashes the prior high of $43 million, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander by 62%. The bottom line also is that about the $700 million, it's less than, but only by $300 million, than the billion-dollar value of the league's least valuable franchise, the, the Marlins. But when you think about it, his bidding war, he ended up in L.A., most people are unhappy, but he broke the curve, and obviously a big deal. That's number one. Opening drive issue number two. The NBA's inaugural in-season tournament accomplished its mission, and then some. First-ever in-season tournament concluded in Vegas, with the Lakers topping the Pacers. LeBron James won the tournament's MVP award after averaging 26 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists per game. These few weeks might best be remembered by the star point guard who faced him in the championship game. Tyrese Halliburton launched himself into national recognition over the past few weeks as one of the best point guards in the NBA, not just one of the best young point guards, 26.7 points, and the NBA's primary stated objective in the in-season tournament, spice up the early season games, and while the NBA season technically starts in October, many casual fans don't begin talking about basketball until the Christmas Day triple, quadruple, whatever header it is, but ratings were up 26% during the group play stage, according to the league, and only got better during the knockout stage. The quarterfinals game with the Lakers and Suns on TNT averaged nearly 2 million viewers, but had 89% higher than the game in a comparable window last year. Semifinals game between the Lakers and Pelicans did even better, and Warner Brothers Discovery WBD up 6%. Game averaged 2.2 million viewers. Where do you go with this? Well, There are a lot of entities, Amazon and others, who want to take their streaming capabilities and obviously take a look at what the rights are to the preseason tournament. The $500,000 prize for winning the in-season tournament might not mean much for LeBron James, who, by the way, became a billionaire last year, or or, uh, Eyebrow, who just signed a three-year, $177.1 million contract extension. But they're only one of six players on their team earning more than $5 million this year, earning your teammates an additional 10% or more salary for playing one additional game can go a long way 
in the locker room. And NBA Commissioner Adam Silver sounds open to making tweets to the in-season tournament. But overall, off to an incredibly strong start. Enormous benefits for team governors down the line, players, next TV contract, and otherwise. Opening drive number two. How about number three? We're talking big money. How about John Rahm? He's making, uh, let's say, less than 40% of Otani, but $300 million is pretty darn good. The reason for the decision, he says, money very, very nice, wants to leave a legacy. During his eight years on the PGA Tour, John Rahm racked up 11 wins, including four during the 2022-23 campaign. He secured a number one ranking in 2020. He held it for 52 weeks. He made over $51 million throughout his time on the PGA Tour. Live Golf, its first tournament in February in Mayacoba in Mexico. Watch for all of the ripple effect, especially now with the leverage and the PGA Tour and the Saudi money. The deadline ostensibly December 31. We'll see how this might impact it. That's number three. Finally, number four. NASCAR, not to be left out, $7.7 billion in media rights deals. On the cusp of announcing the deal with Fox Sports, NBC, Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Amazon. The average annual value of the deals, including the previously announced CW deal, is $1.1 billion per year, about a 40% increase over NASCAR's current deals. NASCAR plans to make the formal announcement as part of the end-season banquet, as they did. And the bottom line is, NASCAR execs said the drawn-out negotiations, which started earlier this year, took longer than expected. But President Steve Phelps said the deal gives the opportunity not only to be larger and more diverse, but confirms NASCAR's standing as a Tier 1 property. It also talks about streaming, talks about Warner Brothers Discovery, Fox, NBC, and other networks, and obviously, as a Tier 1 property, NASCAR breathing easier. All of their executives, including ones we talked to, said we're breathing easier as well. Long time coming, but richly, richly deserved. How about those topics for the opening drive this week? Great guest, Roman Oban, Louisville graduate, whole bunch of accolades, drafted by the New York Giants in 1996, 12 years in the NFL, including on the Bucks Super Bowl 38 World Championship team, first player from Cameroon, born there, ever to play in the NFL. But more important than all of that, you could argue, are his issues off the field. He was the NFL PA rep for three teams over seven years, but also foot, by, vice president of football development for the NFL after joining the NFL front office in 2004 as the director of health and safety. But he's so much more, youth football, high school football, issues that are so turbulent relative to the college game, he deals with a lot of those and relates to a lot of the folks in the college football industry very, very well, by the way. He moved from Cameroon at four. He had the discus high school record at Fort Union Military Academy. He held it until 2012. That's the national record. And obviously on the football field, very disciplined as well. 
Roman Oban, an incredible perspective. Got an athletic family as well. He'll talk about that. I give you Roman Oban. So Roman Oban, let's begin by talking about your amazing, incredible, fascinating background. You moved here from from Cameroon when you were four. Yes. Talk talk about that. Uh, well, my mom came to the States as a uh, bilingual secretary and worked for the uh, Cameroon Embassy. And then I think I was 10 months old and then uh, at the time, and I think and I came over with my uncle a few years after that. Uh, played soccer when you were growing up? Yeah. Well, back then, it was you played rec. There was no travel, no club, AAU, any of that didn't exist. Uh, I played on Saturdays with the little mesh jerseys. And uh, I didn't really play organized. I always wanted to play football. I think I kind of outgrew soccer. I was, they stick you on defense and you have yeah. to stand there and try to, <laughs> you know, yeah. keep kids from scoring. Uh, but then when I got to high school is when I started playing football. Quick feet, big guy though. So you played soccer, and then and then what happened? Talk about that. Yeah, I grew up in the neighborhood. We had a lot of tall guys, and and you know I went to high school with guys that played at Georgetown, and and you know you don't realize the. The talent pool, uh, you know, growing up in urban areas, when you, until you look back on it. But um, I probably uh, was a little too slow for basketball, too many fouls. You know, I played CYO ball and what every kid does. Right. And then uh, I didn't play organized football until 10th grade. But uh, the rumor has it there was some deception involved in getting your mother to give you permission <laughs> to play. What was the deal? Yeah, so um, we, uh, summer before ninth grade, we went, we went on a vacation. Um, I was in Atlanta with my aunt, and then uh, we came back like the day before Labor Day. And I couldn't actually sign up for football because it, my mom didn't know. It's, it started like in August, yeah. the tryouts and all that stuff. So I had to wait until the next year, and she actually didn't want me to play. So um, I remember as a kid watching an old episode of uh, General Hospital, like the Luke and Laura days. Uh, and then you're going to link back to the end of this. So General Hospital, what, so how did that relate to football? What, what happened? So there was an episode where someone took a, a sign check, put a, a piece of paper over it, and traced the signature, and then practiced the signature. And so I actually forged my mom's signature from consent um, so that I can play f organized football. Uh, and so she didn't know that I was playing football until I think someone called her to ask if she could volunteer. Will she be volunteering this year as a mom, you know, for the concession right. stand for the varsity games because it was JV. Right. And she's like, well, what concession stand? I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, your son's on the football team. He's like, no, he's not. And then so we had to have a little discussion. She thought I was going to the library and I was actually going to football practice. And at what time, what, at what point in your career did you decide to take the fork of an athlete versus a bank forger? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Where were you going there? All my, all my, uh, all my signature forging stopped at that moment. So God bless no, you. No man. longer did I engage in that activity. Which is also good for the Bucks and everybody else you played for, right? Louisville <laughs> yeah, and all of that. Exactly. So Louisville and Bucks and Super Bowl and the, your history is incredible. But the on-field, off-field dynamic, you're obviously uh, very well academically trained, and you understand what it meant to be a successful business person as well. When did that all start? Well, I think just growing up and you know, having a growing up with a single mom, and and I learned that you had to have a deeper sense of responsibility to your community, and and you know, being a foreigner and immigrating from another country, it was all about the work ethic. So, anyone who's come from another country knows that it's about that work ethic yeah. and not dishonoring your parents, your grandparents, and and those kind of things. So. I probably didn't grow up having to deal with a lot of the distractions that, you know, quote unquote American kids had to deal with because I wasn't allowed to yeah. do most of the things that they were allowed to do. Yeah. So, um, and the script was never supposed to be written that I was going to play in the NFL because right. you, you don't know that when you're nine. Oh, clearly. I mean, you have a dream about playing yeah. for the Redskins. I grew up in D.C., but the reality is um, I knew that if I were to be put in that position, just even as a collegiate athlete, I'd take school seriously, try to get the best grades possibly, and then, and then 
you know, getting drafted, obviously, it was going back to that, having a deeper sense of responsibility, doing charity work, and, and just using your platform to do good things. And I, and I would say most athletes do good things. Well, we'll talk about the, 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 the specific good things uh, that you're doing with your foundation. But at that fork, it's clearly not just people who are born in other countries and a sense of, of what they need to do to overcome or not. It's professional athletes or athletes who feel empowered and entitled versus ones that are a little more balanced. So advice for the kids that are out there who realize that uh, you know we could be, we couldn't be, what's the path to success as far as keeping the focus? Well, it, it's hard to, and I think going back to the third world country work ethic thing, it's that's obviously my story and I yeah. took ownership of that, but I would say in, in this year, in 2018, 2019, um, you still have to take ownership of your own narrative. You still have to um, uh, work for things, not expect them, um, no matter what opportunities your parents provide you. I think as a parent, you have to be realistic with your kids about their expectations. I think that's where you start to just build confidence in kids. And, and the things that you learn in football, you know, the whole getting knocked down and getting picked back up again. Like, if you really believe that in life, if you really practice that, like, you'll actually be a lot more successful than people who weren't uh, a part of that. Right, now, type of sports. now you come full circle. Now you're pro, uh, Super Bowl champion, college, all of that, and you're inside the NFL as the VP of Youth and High School Football. What was appealing to you to take this and, and, and kind of what are your responsibilities today? Well, back in uh, you know, 2010, 2011, I'd been out of the NFL for, for a couple of years at that point. I was doing a lot of things in the community. I was coaching my kids. Yeah. Uh, I was starting you know, flag business and, and trying to uh, you know, kind of forge my place in the yeah. marketplace. And, and um, I was doing a lot of different things. And then there became an opportunity for me to work at the league office um, to come in as director of player health and safety under, in a youth football vertical. And I felt like I selfishly wanted to say, how can I create a better environment for my kids when they get older, um, because they were playing football and they were in the middle of it, right? Then they were, I had an eighth and a fifth grader at the time. And so um, I saw the discussion was, was inherently negative about football. I knew the, the reality for me about what football did for me and what it still does for a lot of kids, a lot of families, uh, just growing confidence in a kid who couldn't speak English, mm. you know? I mean, I had to, I learned watching Happy Days and Three's Company and all those sitcoms. That's the way you learned English? Well, that was how I practiced. But by the way, you've come a long way since then, <laughs> too, right? just so you understand. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think there's a narrative, obviously, about yeah. football participation now. But I think that the reality is, you know, you have to make the choice uh, about what's best for you at your dinner table, yeah. not based on um, a New York Times article or any media article, or any narrative, but like make the decision based on what's important for you. Um, but in 2011, you were faced with having to make sure your kids were growing up right, yeah. but yet you also saw the numbers, Pop Warner otherwise, the declining participation in youth football, but yet you went further. You tried to create programs to actually build it up, which got the NFL's attention. So what motivated you to actually sit there and do something about it? Well, again, it, it was, I was, uh, again, my kids were younger at the time and they, they played flag and, and I felt like the, the volunteer dads, so yeah. to speak, so to speak yeah. weren't exactly doing everything the right way. <laughs> and um, it wasn't just enough that I played in the NFL because yeah. I was just a dad at that point. Right. And so if I didn't educate myself, equip myself, learn best practices, learn how people are, uh, how the game is being taught better, coached better, if, if I couldn't be a better mouthpiece for the way football should be in the future for my kids, then I wasn't doing a good job. And so that escalated into me, ended up working for the league office, but I, I think I'm here because obviously the credibility I bring to yeah. the table, 
but also I'm still learning. I'm still talking to parents. I'm still helping make sure um, all 32 teams at the NFL are, are doing things in a way that is aligned with what they need, what football needs, and I think they're happy uh, with some of the results. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but I, I, I think I'm happy thus far. Well, the learning is difficult even if the situation was static, but yet we all understand over the last seven years since 2011, all of the discussions about the safety of football and yeah. some of the new scientific evidence and well, we said that the NFL has attempted to be one step ahead of the science, which is a great goal, but it's easier said than done. So is football safer today than it was before? What's your general take on that issue? Uh, football is safer today than it was when at a time that was a lot less regulated. Yeah. Uh, there was no heads up football 20 years yeah. ago. Uh, there were no regulations. There were no heat acclimatization rules. Uh, none of those things existed. And, and football wasn't under the scrutiny that it, that it yeah. is now back then. So. And then from a, just a game development standpoint, you've got a lot of what's called space football. So a lot of spread, a lot of passing, mm. a lot of tackling in space. It wasn't, um, you don't see a lot of just downhill power and ISO and um, that we grew up on, um, obviously. But I think because the game is played differently, it, it's got to be coached differently. It's got to be taught differently. Um, parents now are a lot more savvy with technology. Uh, you've got to use those things, mm. right? Uh, training manuals, uh, updates, and, and all those things are, are ways that parents now can engage uh, with the sport, and I think it, it's going to make the sport better, um, despite the discussion, uh, because there's different reasons why the participation declined, not just a safety perception. Perception has driven uh, USA Football, uh, Pop Warner, all the organizations that, that really care about the kids into uh, things they were doing already, but they're doing them even better, the, 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 the temperature issues, the water issues in practice, as we said, the heads up, the way to hit, all of those issues. So, uh, and it's not just heads up football, it looks like everybody who cares about the game is doing some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you, you have to do those things because people demand more answers. They demand, uh, there's a lot of information 24-7 on your phone, on the internet, and, and all those things. So I just think it's important uh, to make sure that you're, you're educating yourself properly as a parent, no matter what sport you enroll your kid in. Uh, but if you're going to play football, if you're not going to play, make sure you're, you're doing that based off of your own research and not opinions or, or anything like that. So for those of us who don't know the details of Heads Up Football, it's, it's a combination of a lot of often on the field stuff. It's, 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 it's the tackling education, it's coaching education. Talk right. a little bit about what the program entails broadly. Uh, well, broadly, there's different pillars of Heads Up Football, yeah. and, and it was created a few years ago as really an answer um, to, to parents that needed, needed answers. Right. Um, so it's, it's Heads Up Football is blocking, tackling, uh, heat acclimatization, you know, sudden cardiac arrest, uh, uh, talking about uh, how to coach different positions, you know, resources, tools, practice guidelines. Uh, all of those things are, are, are part of Heads Up Football, and it's been adopted in every state. Um, nationally and and it's been taught um, to probably 85 or so percent of youth leagues um, that USA football is defined as a youth league. Right. So anybody connected with the industry, we've all seen it, have been asked by parents regularly, should they let their kids play football? What's, what's your answer? Well, um, I made a decision to let my kids play football. Uh, I think I had a son, my older son didn't play until uh, seventh grade. My younger son played in fifth. Um, he just didn't like a lot of other sports. He wanted to play football, so I, I, I trusted what was being taught. And I think you have to make that decision um, based on what's important to you at your dinner table. Uh, I know that there's a perception of 
parents are less likely to let their kids play, but if their kids want to play, they're more likely to allow them to play if they want to. And so I think it's really about making sure the parents have the right information and it's not a uh, perception based off of articles or, yeah. or, or, or things that are going on with former NFL players. I mean, I, I don't think there's a correlation between uh, a 50, 60-year-old former NFL player and a five-year-old because that five-year-old is going to play a different game than the NFL player did. And that five-year-old may not, may, not, may not play past high school. He may not play past Pop Warner. He might right. play flag. And I think we have to adopt all those things as football. You still have the same number of kids that are engaging in the sport. You still have um, high school participation at over a million uh, right. participants. That's relatively stable, which feeds NCAA. Colleges are still building, adding football teams. I mean, all those things are, are positive. But uh, I think there is a safety perception. There's a safety issue that that I think we're working together with Pop Warner, with USA Football, with all yeah. the NFL clubs uh, to make sure that parents are being educated properly. Is one of the answers against the presumptive sensationalism just more information and more objective uh, awareness of what these programs really are? Yeah, and I think, you, again, you have to be educated because there's a lot of information. There's also a lot of wrong information. Yeah. Uh, but I trust taking a two, three-hour certification. Um, I, I trust having the information, having a practice guidelines, uh, being in a heads-up certified league is, is probably you're more likely um, to not have any issues with than to not having that. Um, and, and I think and it's also up to the child. Like, where's your child's comfort level, boy or girl, about yeah. what type of football they want to play? Where do they want to start? I think that's a parent's decision. You look back on your youth football experience. How did it help you in business, in, in life, in becoming the person you are? Well, my, uh, I, my wife will tell you that my whole life is like an itinerary. I think that, that's directly related to my football career. Um, I understand you're the second smartest spouse in the Oban family. Is that, I probably is that am. Correct? I probably am. I, 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 would, I would agree. And, and I think that the structure that football gives you is, is unique. Um, and I think when your day is controlled from wake up till bedtime in training camp, uh, but I think it gives you a focus. And, and then you go to college and you're practicing in the morning, going to class, practice again, uh, study hall. I mean, you, you live a whole life like that. Yeah. And so when, when football's over, you want to still create some sort of, some sort of structure in your life. Um, you look on social media, you've got you know, motivational Mondays and all these things yeah. that you see. But when you grow up in a locker room, it's all character leadership quotes all over the building. It's all buying in. It's all being accountable to the team. And, and that's why a lot of football players, a lot of student athletes become great salesmen. They become yeah. great people in the financial sector, banking. You know, those result-oriented professions, I think you see a lot of athletes that gravitate towards that because it, it creates that sort of accountability and that's either, either you win or you lose at the end of the day and there's no in-between. I think that's something that athletes can all take with them, um, that they learned as kids through college and then if you play in the NFL, you've literally lived in a, a whole life of, of learning things that way. And I assume your sons get it too. I mean, the same kind of dynamic yeah. and, and process and rigor and training. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing I've learned, you know, when you have a different generation, and we grew up, yes or no sir, and because I said so, mm -hmm. yes ma'am, no ma'am. Now <laughs> it's... That doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> work anymore. <laughs> it doesn't always work, but um, for me as a parent, it's now, we're doing this because, and this yeah. is why it's important. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a way you've got to, now I don't negotiate with my kids, <laughs> uh, but I do explain why. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's fair. I mean, it's, it's a different era than it was 30 years ago. 
shift gears but only slightly. So you and your wife Linda really committed to philanthropy. You started the Roman the Open Foundation 15 years ago. Talk yeah. a bit about it. Uh, we started, you know, as a player. My first uh, five, six years in the league, you, you kind of go to everyone's everyone's charity event, everyone's um, hospital visit, and, and you kind of do a lot of different things. And you lend your name to everything, and then at some point you say, this is what's more important to me. Um, I was born in Cameroon. Like I mm -hmm. said, Cameroon, West Africa. My wife's family's from Haiti. And, you know, we thought it was important to really help kids back home like us. Um, and it's not whether or not they're going to be football players because you've got girls, you've got everybody. Um, but it's, it's having, being educated, uh, having uh, the right amenities, you know, books and, you know, having computers. I mean, things that people take for granted here, um, we felt it was important uh, to do that for kids uh, overseas. And the uniqueness is, obviously, you just said the Cameroon relationship, but your wife, the first, she's a first-generation Haitian-American. Yes. And the process for giving back and the maintaining of the roots with two entirely different countries, how do you manage all that? How does it work? Well, it's um, it's two different countries, but and it's it's two different um, it's you know, interesting dichotomy, but similar issues. You know, the, yeah. the Haiti earthquake in 2010 yeah. was devastating. You know, the people still being affected from that. You know, without housing, eight years later, uh, obviously Cameroon is a third world country, and and you don't have the extreme famine like you do in certain countries and some of those issues. But you do just have a lack of resources. So yeah. if you you know if you have the ability, you put your powers together. You know, have your own resources. You know, borrow and and have other. I mean, she she led uh, drives to donate clothing and materials and books and um, every year we do something like that. And to go I, to each other's uh, stuff. Uh, yes, uh, we went back to Cameroon a few years back, and and I haven't been to Haiti yet, but she's gone yeah. a few times, and then um, I think we're gonna go again before our kids are, are out the door. Five years from now, what are you doing? What's your life look like five years from now? Man. Um, you know, I, I just, you want to keep serving and leading the game and, right. and, and doing things that make sense for you and, and, and hope just that you're making an impact. And if it's done in a corporate setting and in this type of environment, that's great because people see your work. And if it's not done in that, that's fine too. But, but I, think, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity and we still have a lot of, left, a lot of work left to do to really uh, kind of reshape the perception in this, this youth sports uh, landscape, youth football. Well, that's important, but there's one other add-on to all of this. As we hear you think through some weighty issues of the day as a former player, uh, a minority, which is also very important, but th there's a legacy in this game, and there are people that are going through some turbulent times now, and the game needs some thinkers who have access to the top officials at the league level, team level as well. Mm -hmm. I assume you thought about a lot of that as well as yeah. far as the, the league and what it means. No, I have. I mean, I, I think the, you know, the game is important to me, football is important to me, the, uh, the NFL and this building is important to me, and, and I think it's, it's important that we, we're constantly doing things that evolve the game and, and we're, we're, we're ahead of the challenges and not reacting to them. Um, I know sometimes with 24-hour news cycles, it's tough to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, and then the way people receive information now, um, we went from reading a paper to uh, debating to yeah. now we debate about opinions about the, the story, and we don't even know what the story is. Are you people don't read the paper anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't you read snippets on yeah, your yeah, highlights. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Our weekly grab bag segment: top tech, top gambling, and top philanthropy issues of the week. Let's start with tech. The NBA invests in AI, predictive analytics, and micro-betting firm, NVenue. They invested in this firm, according to Sports Business Journal, 
and is being made by their private equity vehicle with the head of the gaming and new business venture, Scott Kaufman Ross, joining the NVenue board as an advisor. The league hopes the technology can help add its gamification capabilities to a digital portfolio and unlock new revenue opportunities with betting partners. The Dallas-based NVenue platform uses the machine learning and AI to analyze historical and real-time data to generate real-time probabilities for every moment in every game. This zero-latency feed has been used by Apple Plus to engage fans during its MLB coverage, while bookmakers can automatically create short-term markets and set odds, dramatically increasing the number of betting opportunities in a single contest. That's very important technologically. The company is a graduate of the NBA's Launchpad Sports Technology Accelerator, working with the league to adapt its technology to the sport of basketball. During its tenure, NVenue tested a free-to-play game during the international version of NBA League Pass's coverage of the NBA Finals last summer, during which it attracted 70,000 active users who watched the games up to 60% longer than passive viewers. Micro-betting presents an opportunity to drive an incremental fan engagement within a live game in a fast-paced sport, uh, fast sport with constant action. The NBA requires a unique approach to providing opportunities that are contextual and personalized. That means speedy and accurate. Number two in tech, VR mental fitness platform NeuroTrainer secures an investment from the Nova Prime Fund. The trainer, a VR cognitive training system for athletes that counts NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA Division I teams as clients, announced an investment firm LG Electronics and Clearbook LLC's Nova Prime Fund this week. The terms of the investment not disclosed, but LG and Clearbook announced the objective is to invest in companies advancing innovators to build better future. LG also has an innovation center called LG Nova, who sponsors a startup program called Mission for the Future. NeuroTrainer, one of 10 finalists in 2021. You get the picture. The incubators, the startups, they tend to be successful as investment opportunities down the road. As number two, number three, LSU baseball is bringing uplift labs to analyze hitting, pitch mechanics, basement, basic movement patterns. And using two iPhones or iPads, Uplift Capture can analyze an athlete's movement patterns as well as sports-specific motions. More than a third of MLB clubs use the technology, but now LSU will use it as well. It provides detailed reports, including the identification of risk factors for UCL tears that would require Tommy John surgery. So it's very proactive, being the first collegiate program to use movement acceptive, uh, 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 to mo- use the assessments from uplift capture perspective, going to further expansion opportunities, helping more LSU athletes improve their movement. And hopefully, they say, it'll be kind of a beachhead, so to speak, starting with the baseball program and the strength conditioning staff, but even through other sports. Sports Business Journal reports, certainly a great idea. And then finally, from the tech side, whoop which we've known for a long time. They partner with OpenAI to create an intelligent coaching application pioneered and powered by ChatGPT, generating artificial intelligence. Whoop 
coach combines the firm's own algorithms with chat GPT to analyze individual fitness goals and biometric data, along with the latest in sports science to deliver personalized conversational answers to health and fitness questions within seconds. The application can create custom training plans, routes, recipes, and recommendations that can identify key data points and provide an individual's fitness. It can also provide natural language responses to questions such as, why am I so tired? Or why is this training important? Whoop says the launch is a significant milestone for its product range, unlocking a whole new form of functionality. A lot of hype about the promise, says Will Ahmad, the founder and executive uh, of Whoop. Coach actually delivers on it. The Whoop Coach now offering on-demand, personalized fitness coaching and the like. Whoop Coach is an exciting application of ChatGPT and uh, GPT and eager to learn from Whoop members on how the models can help unlock human performance. OpenAI made a significant update to ChatGPT adding voice and image analytics capabilities and the ability to browse an entire internet when generating results to user queries. And the latter functionality has been enabled via an integration with Microsoft's Bing search engine, the tool used to eliminate information. Now it's a lot more. Congratulations to Whoop. It's a great opportunity to move forward in the business. All right, let's talk about gambling, the second grab bag item. And there's only one huge or major one big story this week. It's Florida. Seminole Tribe's mobile sports betting app now available to all Floridians. Hard Rock chairman Jim Allen confirmed the app Hard Rock Bet launched in early November in a limited fashion for existing customers for its previous short-lived launch in 2021. The wait list for new customers includes await for the whole gambling industry, but it's moving forward. And since its launch, growing numbers of users have gained access. The app became fully available uh, this last week, and the launch of in-person sports betting, craps, and roulette at the Tribe South Florida casinos uh, later in the week. The full launch comes amid two lawsuits filed by West Flagler Associates, a group of betting companies, seek to halt mobile sports betting, one before the Florida Supreme Court and the other before the U.S. Supreme Court. The lawsuits argue the compact between the state and the tribe that authorizes mobile sports betting violates federal law because the betting does not occur on tribal land. And the state, meanwhile, contends that the betting doesn't violate it because it's servers receiving the basis and the bets on tribal land. The tribe's app had previously launched statewide under a different name in 2021, but forced to halt operations due to the lawsuits. But in coming days, Allen said, several paramutual companies also intend to launch their own sports betting apps as part of the hub-and-spoke system, where a cut of the revenue goes to the tribe. Asked whether he was concerned that the app would be forced to halt again, he said, I always thought I'd be respectful to the legal process, so until a court makes a decision in a different direction, we're going to move forward. And anybody over 21 who is currently in Florida can now use the app. Arizona, Indiana, Ohio, Tennessee, Virginia, Jersey also have access. Incredibly interesting as they move forward. 
at your gambling issue as well as your tech issue, let's also talk about good sports. Very important these days as we get closer to the holidays. The Washington Capitals hockey fights, can- fights cancer program raised over $104,000 for the team hockey fights cancer beneficiaries. Make-A-Wish Mid-Atlantic, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, and the Monumental Sports Foundation. The past 25 years, the NHL and the National Hockey League Players Association have united players, teams, coaches, broadcasters, caregivers behind this and the initiative raised over $32 million since its inception and been at the forefront of raising awareness and supporting those affected by cancer, touching the lives of millions. Hockey Fights Cancer is a big, huge deal with the NHL, and clearly some teams are raising more money than others, but everybody is. The Tracy's Kids uses art therapy to help young cancer patients and families coping with the obvious emotional stress. This is another great example. Number two, Minnesota Varsity League, the MNVL, the Wisdom Gaming-owned Scholastic Esports Company, announced a varsity esports program for middle schools in the U.S. and Minnesota called MNVL, will offer five through eight graders, the opportunity to compete in a Mario Kart, Super Smash Brothers, chess, and Minecraft in two separate seasons this year. The programs are designed similarly to the original Varsity League. It also has two uh, very significant seasons and organizes Varsity tournaments in several games, Rocket League, Fortnite, Valorant, and others. More than 80 participant schools and more than 2,000 members for the fall season. Wisdom Gaming is also the operator of T-Wolves, the official eSports arm of the NBA Timberwolves. The organization also active in the college gaming scene in the U.S. and will continue to grow. The company also the owner of an eSports organization, Torrent, which ceased operations earlier this year but has reconfigured. The league recently launched a fund which offers intern opportunities in STEM, production, and marketing, providing more middle school students with equal opportunities to engage and learn in games is a very important part of their future, and certainly it is a big deal and will continue to be. Number three, La Jolla High School and Madison bring together general and special ed students for basketball. These issues big around the holiday, but it should be all year round. For most kids, gives them an opportunity to participate in a sport in high school they normally wouldn't because of their disability. Everyone involved in this program is playing together for all causes, really fun. The special education and general education students share the space, so it's really good. It's also very nice and refreshing to see the students come and support other special ed students as they move forward. Finally, the McConnell Foundation awards 2023 high school hockey grants. 
McConnell family were the original founders of the Columbus Blue Jackets, and the organization awards 35 Columbus area high school programs for the 26th consecutive year. They've donated over $1.8 million to support hockey high school in greater Columbus. And when you look at all of the schools that they've been involved in, they will continue to do that. More than 1,100 players, coaches, and families attended the Blue Jackets game against the LA Kings to celebrate high school hockey night. But it's so much more than that, as we've said, especially as we move into the holidays. And when you think about all of these good sports issues in the grab bag, about 15% of the $1.3 trillion business of sports is driven by or connected with philanthropy, and it's growing 5 or 6% every year, and will continue to grow more as social media ties the knot with creative marketing and creative financing. That's our grab bag for the week. Here are the three to watch coming up for the week. Number one, the Bears are surveying Soldier Field lots, parking lots, for a new stadium. Options for a new stadium beyond Arlington Heights, which is one of the major issues that Kevin Warren, the president of the Bears, and others are looking at as a, quote, primary site. But now the south lot outside Soldier Field being surveyed as one of several sites under consideration. To remember, the team's lease runs through 2023, and the stadium, owned by the Chicago Park District, renovated in 2003 for $632 million, certainly keeping their options open. This is the beginning of the story, not the end, but that's an issue to follow. Number two, LeBron James looking to bring an NBA franchise to Vegas, along with partners Fenway Sports Group and Redbird Capital and others who are looking to establish a team in Nevada. You talk about a new arena, that's not that difficult when you think about all of the other issues as well. Vegas goes from none to potentially four in the matter of 10 years. Unheard of in any city except Vegas. That's number two. And then finally, number three, the Columbus crew beats the LAFC team two to one to claim their third MLS Club Cup for 21,000 folks at Lower.com Field. And the bottom line is a tremendous season for the teams. It's a third championship won by the crew, one of the 10 original MLS teams. And it marked something of a renaissance for the team that won only 10 games last year and was playing in the postseason for only the second time since 2008. The big issue here is the passion, the excitement, and the consistency in the first year of the full deal with Apple+. Plus. So obviously the big what to watch with the MLS is how they build on this. Well, that's our show for today, ladies and gentlemen. We would love to thank all of you who listened and watched, but also particularly love to thank Robin Oman for his perspective on all of this. I'm the sports professor, Rick Harrow, inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. Speak with you soon.